God is the same yesterday and forever. Now, if you ask a Christian about that, they would say, yes, of course I believe that. But it's always important to know the difference between the, t the story we're telling others and the story we're listening to. Because if you discern the story that many Christians are listening to, they in fact don't believe that. What many of us, again, we would never say this from the level of intellect, but we tend to believe it at the level of emotion, which is in general is that God was kind of scary in the old days. And he was a little temperamental. And uh, when he got mad, everybody knew it. And somewhere between what my Bible calls the Old Testament and the New Testament, he found Prozac or something. And then showed up as Jesus and said, sorry guys, that was a really bad turn for me, bad season, but I've got some therapy, I've put some stuff together now, and I'm a lot nicer now. And consequently what happens is this, Christians are drawn to Jesus, but scared of God. They think Jesus is the guy who'll hang out with me even when I'm in my sin, but God's the guy who doesn't want to be near me if I'm in my sin. And if he comes, the closer he gets, the more angry he becomes. So it is very important that we understand that the doctrine of God's immutability presents a challenge to this. It is saying, no, that is not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So with that little bit of theological uh, terminology in our toolbox, let's jump right into Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, which I'm going to tell you now, we'll look at again next week, because today we're only gonna really dive into one phrase in these four verses. So uh, look at Colossians 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Now, if you'll notice here, their scholars debate, many, many scholars, not everyone, but many scholars believe that Paul has, is, is quoting a hymn, either a hymn that was sang in the early church or perhaps even a hymn that he penned himself uh, as he was writing this letter. Uh, if it is a hymn, it's probably one he wrote himself because it so aptly fits the context of the rest of the letter. And so um, here we have a great example of, of how, our, uh, how our awareness of God and our worship of God are interconnected. You, that, that good theology results in uh, all inspired doxology or worship. And, and, and you can see that example here in this hymn uh, as well. But what I want us to do is we'll kind of go into that a little bit more. I want us to just think about that opening phrase. He is the image of the invisible God because this has implications. And I only have one point this morning, which is this. God 
is like Jesus. That's it. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. That's what immutability means. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. Now, I want to go slow so as to limit potential misunderstandings in what is being said because I want it to be an encouragement and not an obstacle. But Scripture itself testifies to the fact that humankind's understanding of God was limited until the revelation of Jesus. Which is to say, the Old Covenant Scriptures, which are a recording of his people progressively growing in their understanding of who he is, reaches its goal, pinnacle, and crescendo in the coming of Christ. And the coming of Christ was necessary because the process by which we articulate our understanding of God eventually becomes an organized ideology. And if we're not careful before long, our worship and our devotion is rooted in our ideology or ideas about God rather than God himself. Now, as long as our theology is opening up our eyes to see more of the beauty of who God is, it's a very positive thing. But the moment that our theology becomes authoritative boundaries that limits what we're allowed to see about God, then it has become idolatry, and it's actually competing with my relationship with God. Because pretty soon, I'm more comfortable with the ideas about God that I can put under a microscope and be sovereign over and control way more comfortable with that than the God who moves beyond the limits of my understanding and the boundaries of my ideology. And so, and so it's very, very important that we understand God created this, he understands that, and so what we see in scripture is this progressive revealing of who he is until we finally see it crystal clearly in the coming of Jesus. Now, for some of you, that may have been a statement that's somewhat uncomfortable. Therefore, we're gonna do something a little bit different this morning because it's important to me that this afternoon, or whenever it is that, for the, for the few of you who discuss the sermon outside of this context, I understand, I didn't always discuss the sermon outside of this context, but when you do, it's important for me that the discussion is not about Artie's thoughts. The discussion needs to be about your responsibility to be discerning to the scripture. So this morning, what I wanna do is I want to show you from scripture how thoroughly this idea has been present. And so we're gonna go on a little bit of a journey here. So we're gonna start with mentioning Hebrews 1.1. Now we're gonna look at Hebrews again in just a few seconds, but right now I wanna highlight one particular word. It says, in times past, God spoke in partial, everyone say partial, 
Okay, in, I'm sorry, I'm reading, I put it in your notes because this is not the Christian Standard Bible. This is the New American Bible and then the New American Standard Bible. And I don't want to bore you with all of this, but simply to say this, these translations have been revised to be, become more of the lit, most literal translations that we have access to. And so, so it says in the New American Bible, in times past, God spoke in partial and various ways to our ancestors and the prophets. I believe our transla translation would, would probably say it a little bit differently. The, the New American Standard Bible says, uh, in past times, God spoke in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. The point is this. God was consistently revealing himself a bit at a time. God spoke partially and partially and partially. And so what we see as we move through scripture is this growing understanding of who God is. So let me give you an example of how this works. Early on in Israel's history, the way they understood God was that he was pleased by sacrifice. And you can go read the book of, 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 of the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and it's very detailed about the, 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 the laws and the worship that Israel was, was intended to pursue. But then the prophets come along and they're going to say, thing like, th say things like this. Thus says the Lord, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So you see, is the Bible being contradictory? No, it's not. It's bringing in this fuller picture of God, okay? It's not just sacrifice, it's mercy that he's pointing to. So his revelation is pointing to something higher. It also details the way uh, Israel was intended to conduct their solemn assemblies, their, 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 their special worship services where they express gratitude or repentance. Um, it, and, and there's details, instructions in the, Old Test, in the Old Covenant scriptures about how that was supposed to transpire and then Isaiah comes along he says thus says the Lord I hate those solemn assemblies I, I can't stand that music it's like noise in my ear your fasting means nothing because I don't want you simply to refrain from food I See how this is happening? There is like this, th th this limited understanding of God and then as they grow in their walk with God and as the prophets come and share clarification, there's this growing progressive, healthier, more accurate understanding of God. Now, the Old Testament is not false in what it presents about God, but it is incomplete until we see the coming of the Son of God. And the scripture will use phrases like this, that it happened in the fullness of time. As though God was discerning when the right moment was going to be that he would incarnate himself in the body of his son and reveal himself in a way that is not ideological, but tangible, touchable. So, so at times there were partial, it was portions. Before Jesus, any really. Before Jesus, any revelation of God was an ongoing partial revelation because of the limitations of our humanity. But in the fullness of time, the mystery was revealed because God was in Christ. Thus, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15a says, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, this has some implications. 
And we're going to dive into what those implications might be. But before we do, let's look the way, look at the way that this idea is expressed in the scripture. First of all, let's look at the larger context of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Verse 2 is so critically important for your own personal theology. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Now, what's, what's great about what Paul does in Colossians and what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is they're pulling themes and motifs from the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, but with a little bit of a change. In Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative puts the action on God, but in the New Testament, as they're reflecting on it and they're using these themes from, the, from Genesis, they are highlighting that this is a reflection of the activity of Jesus because they're one and the same in substance. So it says that in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. God, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, if you are, you're welcome to look at the scriptures. I think all the scriptures are in your notes. But if you're bold and daring and you flipped open your Bible and you have a highlighter with you, there are some phrases I would like for you to consider highlighting. And from this one, it's simply this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Jesus is the exact expression of the nature of God. Because if you're not careful, what you will find Christians doing is there's a limited understanding of God in the Old Covenant Scriptures, and that understanding of God is that he's, he's really into uh, a violence and judgment and vengeance. And then Jesus comes along, and he's offensively against violence and vengeance. And, and he, he crosses boundaries that the old covenant scriptures seem to put in place. And what people will do is say, now you can't go overboard with love and forgiveness. You've got to balance that with vengeance and judgment and wrath that we see in the Old Testament. That's what they'll say. That's what they'll be taught. And the, what you're doing there is doing this. We've got to balance the full revelation of God with the partial revelation of God or a limited revelation of God or a limited understanding of God. I'm trying to use my words carefully so as to reduce the amount of emails that I wake up to tomorrow morning. Uh, and, 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 so, and so so I would say, no, that, that is an incorrect approach because what you're saying is, well, he's changed and we gotta remember the old God too. No. God was progressively revealing himself, or maybe it would be better to say that the scriptures record humanity's progressive understanding of God who's being revealed. That actually, um, we'll edit the, the rest of the sermon and start it here, um, David, uh, this week. Um, that, that's actually what I, I, I intend to communicate. Um, 
our understanding, Israel's understanding is increasing through this progressively. And so, no, Jesus is the final word. Like everything, everything that came before Jesus has to be understood in light of the God that Jesus reveals because Jesus is the exact expression of his nature. Let's, let's, let's kind of dig into this a little more. Um, John 1.1 1, 1 testifies to this in speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Now again, I'll do this softly because I don't want to be misunderstood, but it's important for me that you understand that it's not saying in the beginning was the Bible. That's the Bible in the scriptures is referred to as the scriptures. So Paul says in Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. No, the word of God is Jesus, not a book. The word of God is infallible and inerrant. And at about 12 or 13, he began to grow a beard because the word of God is Jesus. In the beginning was the word the, and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was God. Jesus, maybe we should say it this way to be more theologically precise. The pre-incarnated Christ is God. So when the pre-incarnated Christ as God becomes the incarnated Christ, he becomes God in the flesh. And we all are familiar with that because we eat turkey and give Christmas presents to celebrate it. John 1, 14 through 18, drop down a few verses. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. You see what John is hinting at? He's not saying that cousin Jesus was born before me because we know that's not true. Elizabeth got pregnant with John months before Mary got pregnant with Jesus. So John would have been the elder, but what he's acknowledging here is that Jesus is more than Jesus. He's the word made flesh. He's God incarnate. He existed before me, verse 16. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Now look at this. What John is going to do is speak to the fact that the total revelation of scripture is not flat. It crescendos to a point. And its point, the star of the show is Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so the revelation and understanding of the God isn't flat, it crescendos to a point and that point is Jesus. A fascinating example of this, before we go on into this, Mike, please help me remember uh, where I was, if you don't mind. Um, do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Remember that story? Um, the, 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 the main three, uh, Peter, John, and James, get to go with Jesus up the mountain. 
And when they're up there, there's this moment of transfiguration where they behold the full or, or a fuller expression of the glory of Christ and they're scared to death. And while they see this, Elijah and Moses come to Jesus. You guys remember this story? It's kind of a weird story, especially for us non-Jews, Gentile Christians, de- millennia removed from the context. But, but he's afraid. And what he looks at, he says, these are the three. These are the guys. These are the flesh trinity of our faith. You've got Elijah. You've got a Moses. You've got Jesus. He's looking at them flat. And what does he say? Lord, I'm going to build a memorial for you and for Moses and for Elijah. Does anybody remember what happens next? Daddy shows up and God says to Peter when he says this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And it's as though Peter is being rebuked for thinking that there should be an equal equal altar for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Because he's operating from a vantage point of limited human understanding that God was, that Jesus was going to be in to stretch and challenge. It's okay, Mike, I remember. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Do you see what's being said? Everything that we needed to know about God wasn't contained in Moses. It required a journey that crescendos with the revelation of Jesus. And I hope that I don't sound pedantic. I'm just trying to go slow because I think it's really important that we see how this idea is rooted in the scripture. Um, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that grace and truth wasn't in the world till Jesus showed up. Grace and truth has always been in the heartbeat of God, but it took us a while to come to a fuller understanding of that reality, which is why God sent his son. No one has ever seen. Now this word seen, well, let's just read the sentence. No one has ever seen God. We pause right there. Because if you are a student that takes the Bible seriously, you're going to go like, well, now we've got a problem. Because I was always told that the scripture always told the truth and never contradicted itself. But John just writes that no one has ever seen God. And now us good evangelicals are going, wait a second. Either John's not telling the truth or some Old Testament writers aren't telling the truth. Because in fact, we have many stories where people have seen God. They're called theophanies. A theophany is a physical manifestation of Yahweh. We see it in Genesis, the the theophany of an angel, an angel of the Lord. Anytime you see angel of the Lord written where the Lord is written in all caps, it's referring to a physical manifestation of Yahweh. If it's in small caps, then it's not referencing Yahweh. It's, it's, repre- it's referencing an angelic messenger. And so, but we know that that happened with Abraham. We also know there was another theophany, remember, where Moses at least got to see the backside of God. 
He saw God burning in a bush and he hid in the cleft of the rock and God covered him and he saw him pass by. So we're like, okay, what's going on, John? Uh, a lot of people uh, have seen God and it's in the history of your scriptures. And John's saying to us, oh Lord, I know that. But the word he uses can also mean to perceive or discern. To perceive or discern. So he's not talking about whether or not someone saw a theophany, but whether or not he was fully perceived by who he was. And it says, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. But what John is doing is, you see the contrast in that sentence. And if we were faithful Jews, this would be highly offensive. This is why this idea is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke were distributed more of among a Jewish audience. That would have created a stumble block, stumbling block. John is writing for a Greek audience who wouldn't have had the same theological hiccups that faithful Jews would have had with this idea. Because you see what he's saying? He's creating this contrast. Yeah, there was Moses, but... It is Jesus who ultimately reveals God. No one has seen God, but Jesus Christ, who's at the Father's Son, he has revealed him. John 5, verses 19 through 20. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and, and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, here it is, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. Again, just as the Father, so also the Son only God can live, give life, but Jesus can give life. Why? Because Jesus is God. God in flesh, hell incarnate deity. Clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, hell incarnate deity. John 8, 9, then they asked him, where's your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. To know Jesus is to know God. John 10 verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So again, not only is he highlighting I and the Father are one, but notice what he did here. Trixie Jesus. Um, look at what he does. He says, verse 28, I give eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Then the parallel is, my Father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see what he's doing? It is one and the same can't be snatched from the Father's hand, you can't be snatched from the hand of Jesus. Incidentally, this is not the sermon for this morning, but he says, no one can snatch them from my hand. 
And what people will read into that is, no one except me can snatch me from Jesus' hand. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? Are you a one? Yes, you are. And what Jesus says is, no one can snatch you out of my hand. I don't know about you, I've tried many a time. Can't do it. And now, luckily, I don't want to. Okay, um, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Thank you. John 12. It wasn't Mike, but it was a May. And they're one. Like Jesus and the Father are one. I see what you did there. Well played, Mays. Well played. John chapter 12. Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. The one who sees me sees him. If you see me, you see him. John 14, 7 through 9. If you know me, you will also know my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord said, Philip, show us the father. And that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, how have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. What do we take from these scriptures? God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. I felt so corrected when this simple idea began to wake its, make its way into my heart. And to be honest, it's only done that in the past five to seven years. It happened because as, I was, as we were studying the book of Luke, and I was trying to do my due diligence, I kept bumping up against a Jesus that didn't reflect the image that I had made him in. I let my theology, my ideology, and if I can be honest, my politics shape the Jesus I was worshiping. And then as we began to take three years digging into the book of Luke and staring at the life of Christ, I had to repent of my idolatry. And I had to change. I had to change the way I thought about God. And I had to allow the God revealed in Christ to be the God that I worship and require all my other ideology to bow at his altar. And as I did, it transformed me because I realized in that gap between the Jesus I worshiped and served and the, and the Jesus revealed in the gospel of Luke, I began to incorporate into my understanding of God very unhealthy beliefs about him 
And what I didn't know is what I was believing about God was motivating me to stay away from him. And the way theology works, probably in any movement, is that once we get an idea, we then will sloganize it. And once it becomes a slogan, eventually we think that that slogan is probably found in scripture. And we just believe the truncated revelation of the slogan rather than the magnificent revelation revealed in scripture and the even more magnificent revelation revealed in Christ. And so we'll say things like, I, I heard this all the time, God sees Jesus and not my sin. Has anybody heard that growing up? Okay, get a few little people popping up here and there. Don't raise your hand if you heard it from me, because that will just make me feel embarrassed. Thank you, Rachel. Um, she grew up in the youth group. Now, here's what people are trying to say is that, you know, uh, God's not evaluating you based on your sin and behavior. He is relating to you based on the work of Jesus. And that sounds similar to what some scriptures say. So yeah, that must be God, good theology. My friends, that kind of thinking will destroy your intimacy with God. And here's why. If God sees Jesus and not my sin, then God doesn't see me. I don't need a God that will be placated simply by loving his Jesus and tolerating me because I follow Jesus. I need a God who enters into the realm of my sin regardless of what I'm hiding behind, whether it's my concept of Jesus or it's some other more wicked sin of idolatry or addiction. I need a God who comes into that place and meets me there and rescues me and brings me out. So when we say God is like Jesus, then let's take just a few minutes here as we close and ask ourselves, is that true? Then what might we learn about God by revisiting some of the anecdotes from the life of Jesus? If that's true, then what kind of God is he? Well, this is not exhaustive, and I know that it's not exhaustive, um, but they're critical. Number one, let's look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. What kind of God is he? He's the kind of God that responds when religion and greed distract people from his purpose. When his people become more preoccupied with religion and greed and the way that those two things can connect together, which again, I'm reading that into the context of the temple money changers. We don't have time for that, but the Google, you might find an article on it. But the point is, he's the kind of God that doesn't sit idly by even when people are oppressed in the name of worship and religion. He responds to that. That moves his heart and it's not moved with joy. Luke 19, 41 through 42. But he came closer, but he being Jesus, came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead. He began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden 
from your eyes. What kind of God is he? He's a God whose heart is broken over those who refuse the way of peace. Even if they're justifying it by looking at old covenant scriptures that highlight violence on behalf of God. Because that's what people will do. Well, Jesus said, turn the other cheek, but Yahweh said, go kill him. So you got to balance it out, Artie. No, I don't. Because that understanding was a limited understanding of humanity's view and, it be, and, and all that obscurity is erased with the coming of Jesus. So now I understand that the God I worship does not call me to commit violence against other people. He weeps when I refuse to give myself over to the things that make for peace. Luke 13, verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, I'm going to refrain from talking about the comfortability of the scriptures to use feminine metaphors for the nature of God. That's for another sermon, although I think it's important to highlight. But if we look at that scripture and we ask, so what kind of God is he? He's a God who longs to gather those unwilling to embrace him. This overwhelms me because what I took away from my religion is that God is pleased to reject those who don't want him. He's fine with that. Well, he's not fine with it. He actually longs to gather the people that don't want to be gathered by him. God wants those who do not want him. God wants those who do not want him. See, my friends, we are made in his image. He's not made in ours. What do we do? I smell rejection. What do I do with that revelation? Reject you first. I don't want those who don't want me. That's a, a broken human's perspective. God is not like that. He's not insecure like I am. His ego is not wrapped up in being liked. Consequently, he wants those who don't want him. John 8, 11. No one, Lord, she, okay, I'm the context. This is a story, again, what time is it? Ooh, gotta be careful, Artie. I think we're gonna eat tacos today. So, um, uh, I'm so sorry, I had a brief taco fantasy and I lost my place. Oh yeah, so we're talking about, uh, we're talking about um, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now again, I don't know how things worked back then, but I don't think they're that dramatically different than today in that adultery usually requires two people being caught, not just one. But of course, given the assumptions of the day, they didn't grab the guy, they grabbed the woman who is undeniably caught in sin, sinful behavior and activity. And they bring him to Jesus. Now again, 
This is another hint of how progressive understanding works. Because according to their understanding was, the law says, stoner. What do you say? He doodles in the dirt. Then he gets up and simply says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And they're like, whoa, we didn't totally get that revelation from what we understood from the law. But now that the fullness of revelation has come in Christ, now we have to read what we used to understand in a different light. Now, all of a sudden, when we showed up, we were confident that we would be justified according to not secular ideology, but according to our religious conviction. We felt we would show up and be justified in casting these stones upon this woman. But now that we've encountered the fuller revelation of Jesus, we have to reconsider what we used to understand. And the stones go thump, 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 thump to the ground. They all drop in the fuller revelation of what Jesus came to bring, which is grace and truth. Then he looks up and it's now just him and the woman and now we pick up our quotation, John chapter 8, verse 11. Well, he said, is anybody here to continue? And she says, no one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go from now on, do not sin anymore. What kind of God is he? He's a God that says to guilty sinners, neither do I condemn you. And there's a subtle message being said in there, and it was wrong for my people following their convictions about me to think they had the right to, to, to condemn you as well. That's what's being communicated in the full story. So he's the kind of God that says to guilty sinners, neither do I condemn you. He's also though the kind of God that by removing our shame, he empowers us to go and sin no more. That's the kind of God that is revealed in Christ. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 17, this is the last one. While he, Jesus, was reclining at the table, in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And if you read the Gospels enough and look at these conversations, you can kind of pick up that the tone here wasn't an innocent inquiry. Hey, I was just wondering. No, it's how dare he? Why in the world is he eating, eating with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12. And again, we have a few minutes. It's so important you understand. Why did they assume that it would have been wrong for him to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why did they have that assumption? Because of the limited understanding that they took away from their religious conviction. I know that this is uncomfortable, but we need to see it in the scripture because what they are susceptible to, we also are susceptible to. So don't think for a second their assumptions came from an evil place. It didn't. It came from their conviction born of a desire to honor God. And although that was their motives, it led them to a place that was 100% wrong. 
and the wrongness of their religious conviction couldn't be corrected until they saw the fuller revelation in Jesus. Who didn't just teach it, he practiced it. So why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12. Now when, there, and when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. What kind of God is he? He is a God who welcomes sinners at his table. He is a God who desires mercy and not sacrifice. He is a God who calls sinners to himself. He is a God who wants the unwanted. He is a God who loves, wants, and welcomes the people that some of those who practice the religion in his name reject. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying this as a rebuke, like, well, you can't reject people for any reason because God, the, I think that's a discussion to have. But the reason why I mention it this morning isn't to rebuke those who may reject those who God embraces. Although if the Spirit convinces you of that, I would encourage you to not ignore it. But actually, I want to highlight that because I want to say to those present and online, either in real time or in the future, that just because Christians have condemned and rejected you and said that you're not worthy or you're not welcome, until in addition to your faith in Christ, you reach a certain change in behavior. It was them that rejected you, but not God. God actually goes toward those that the people that follow the religion in his name are ashamed to be seen with. Those are the people that God goes to. Every so often you have these questions that come to you when you're involved in leadership. And one of them is, who's worthy to take communion? You'd be amazed that people think there are some things that people do that make them unwelcome at this table. I'm talking mature, Jesus-loving Bible-believing Christians who are well-intended but misguided believe there are some not welcome at this table. Consequently, it's never been in anyone who practices their sin. Anybody who practices their sin, welcome at this table along with me. But if you practice sins, unlike the ones I struggle with, then I wonder if you're welcome at this table. And I've actually had people speak to me privately and request that I proactively ask certain specific, tell certain specific individuals if they come up to the table, I'm sorry, you can't participate here. Now again, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not condemning those people. I totally understand why they would say that and I understand what their struggle is. And they are well-meaning. They're doing it out of a sense of honor toward God. I do believe that, but that doesn't mean that they're right. My good intentions can still fuel bad theology, right? So I was talking to this with a, with a friend and mentor of mine who she has been one of the people that have helped disciple me in my journey. 
And I was talking about this pressure of defining who could and couldn't come to the table. And you know what she said to me? It's not your table. You're right, okay. That closes the discussion for me. Jesus is the one that determines the inclusivity or exclusivity of this table, not Pastor Artie. And, and, and not my religious ideology. So, he wants those who the people who practice their religion in his name sometimes reject. So, with the worship team would come forward as we close. The, the, um, the learning habits that we've encouraged throughout this series is that of awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. What I hope took place today is potentially some contribution to your ongoing awareness and learning. If that didn't happen, pray for me. But if it did happen, that was my goal, my desire. But now you and the Spirit have to take it from here. As you're aware and as you learn, then you have to reflect and take action. So, as we create space to come to the table of the Lord, or maybe this afternoon or sometime later this week when you're in a prayerful place with your journal. Ask the Spirit to reveal and deliver you from any toxic belief about God that is not confirmed by the revelation of God in Christ. It may not answer all your questions. You may be even confused by these ideas. That's okay. We're, we're fallible humans with limited understanding. Confusion is part of the growth process. Sit with the question till the answer is revealed. Or go have a discussion with someone about it. Work it out together in community. Number two, reflect on what you've learned. And critically important, discern how the Spirit is calling you to respond to what He has shown.